right, if you guys want to take your Bible and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible, you can lift your hand, we'll get one to you. We also have them, uh, many of the scriptures up on the screen, but uh, it's good to get familiar with the text as we go through it in front of us. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're looking at uh, verses 17 through 19. And uh, let me read it here. It says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So Lord, just as we um, come to the word and we just have gone as a church, just I think of even my time here from Luke to the book of Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and all the way uh, to where you have us today uh, in First Timothy chapter 6, Lord, that this message uh, in verses 17 through 19 um, it's just where we're at. It's your word for us today. And you've been so good to change us as we've been in it before. Would you change us, uh, conform us into your image as we study the scriptures today? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So well, we've been in First Timothy for a good number of weeks. It's a pastoral epistle. Uh, it's one of a few here as we're going through on Sunday mornings. Uh, that Paul has written to some pastors who've been entrusted with some oversights and some ministry. Here, Timothy, uh, being a young disciple of the Apostle Paul's, uh, has been uh, entrusted with some stewardship over Ephesus and uh, rich history of church planting and missions in Ephesus found in uh, the book of Acts, chapters 18 and 19. And and, uh, and so there's just this, this rich history with a, a sweet pastor that's been sent uh, to help set things in order uh, there in Ephesus. And so as Paul writes and gives him some advice and some charges, uh, some encouragement, uh, it's important as we get into even our text here, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's the end of the book. It's some very practical money matters type stuff. But it's important to know that as we go through the book of 1 Timothy, that it's, you know, chapter 6 isn't set apart from chapter 1, you know. And, and even in the introduction, if you kind of want to just be flipping through the book with me, in, in chapter 1, the introduction, it says, you know, typical Paul, you know, grace to you and peace in the name of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. So even in this very unique introduction to this pastor epistle, uh, Paul is writing it with the mind that, that God is the Savior. God is a God who saves. God is a God who, who desires uh, to save. And, and, and that's even speaking of the Father, God. And we see the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who, who also is Savior. And yet he's written down as, as Jesus Christ, our hope. So we have Savior and we have hope in our God. 
Uh, in, in chapter 2, I think it's the end of verse 3, again, God is called our Savior. And it says, God our Savior who desires that no one would perish, but that all would come uh, to the knowledge of the truth. And it says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So as we are here in chapter 6, verse 17 through 19, we're going to be talking about money. And Adam was just up here talking about money. It's like, oh my gosh, is that all that church cares about is money? Well, we, we care about money, and we'll talk about that for a second, because money is actually something that's an indicator of something much deeper that's going on uh, in us and in our life. But but as Paul talks about money, you know, in chapter 6, verses 17, and really chapter 6, verse 1 through 19, there's a lot of money talk going on by Paul, but it's, it's all just in light, and it's all with this purpose of, of God, who's the Savior, and, and the work that he's done in sending Jesus to be a, uh, a mediator between God and men, and provide um, uh, reconciliation between God and sinful men. And, uh, and that that should be testified in due time throughout all the world. So you just see the missionary heart of God. And so as you go on throughout the book, you've got this pastor epistle for a church in Ephesus. It talks about the role of men in the church. You know, men ought to, uh, I desire that men everywhere lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting within a church service. And I desire that, that the women adorn themselves with propriety and moderation. And, and it goes on to talk about the offices within the church of, of elders and deacons and the qualifications thereof. And, and, and then it goes on in chapter 3, verse 15. And, it, and Paul says that I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So that's been called the key verse of the whole book. I am writing this to you so that you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of the Lord. But it goes on at the end of that key verse, in verse 15 of chapter 3, to say that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. So all this talk about the world coming to know of this Jesus, the mediator between God and men, the ransom. He gave himself up to pay the, the kidnapping price, you know, uh, that sin and the devil have, have kidnapped us. And so Jesus gave himself to pay that price. He purchased us with his own blood. And so it's important that we know how to conduct ourselves and how the church ought to be conducted. There's a right way to do business as a church. There's a right way to conduct ourselves because it's, it's, you know, this is the pillar of the truth, and the world needs to know the truth. And just a couple of verses later, as you go through chapter 3, it goes on to say, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is that truth that God was manifested in the flesh? That's Jesus, right? God manifested in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen by the angels. Uh, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. It's the story of the gospel. And so all of that to be said, it's that when we come to these verses, it's, it's, it's not something that in its practicality is just to be checked off on our checklist of stuff to do and, you know, be good and all that. Because the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Muslims and the Buddhists, and they got a whole lot of that stuff down externally 
But there's a work that's going on in the great plan of God of salvation for sinners and the transformation of their lives. And then that truth of what God has done for sinners going out to the world. Therefore, money matters. And so we've got to talk money matters. Okay? And so we get into chapter 6 and you look at verses 1 and 2. We talked about it weeks ago. And it's a message to those who are working hard for the money. So hard for the honey. All right. Uh, It's for those guys that are working hard. Those that would even be called slaves. And literally, Paul was writing to slaves. And nowadays, we can read it and we can apply it as those that were working hard. And we ought to honor our masters. Because when we honor them, we are, why would it matter? Why would we, why would we, why does it matter if we honor our boss, even if they're just jerks and they're not treating us right now? We've gotten a raise in such and such time. Because at the end of verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, so that we may adorn the doctrine of God. So that we may keep that message of the gospel going out to the world and to the workplace. So why does it, how we earn our money matter? So that the gospel could be proclaimed. It goes on in verse 2 to talk about if you've got believing masters, you need to honor them too. Don't be bitter at them just because they're brothers. But man, like, be glad that they're being blessed because they're believers and they are the beloved. And so for those that are making the money, verse 1 and 2 is for you. Even if you're just in the grind, just the daily grind, you just got, man, the, the man, you know, the man. Oh, it's just hard to go to work tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday. I'm dreading it. Some good word for you in verses 1 and 2. Then in chapters uh, 6 through 10, it's for those who want the money. You want the money. You, you've, you've, you've let your heart go into covetousness about the money. Uh, you are not content with the things that you have. And so there's these strong exhortations for you in verses 6 through 10 that godliness with contentment is great gain. Just having food and having clothing The bare necessities, we should be content with that because we have the Lord. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We understand that the shortness of life and the transcendence of life, that we brought nothing into this world and it's certain that we'll carry nothing out of this world. So this whole covetousness, materialism, getting the next best thing and the next bigger thing, that is just such a lie and it steals life from us. It it robs God of his of his workforce to go tell the world because we're just stuck here in materialism, just wanting the next thing, and, the, and we're just discontent because we're not godly. And so we tap into godliness. We tap into life found in Christ Jesus and understanding that he is enough. And then in verses 11 through 16, we've studied it. It's, a, it's kind of this interesting parentheses or a parenthetical statement uh, in verses 11 through 16, there's this parentheses, and then he gets back into money, and it's addressed to those who have the money, those who have the money. So we have, going into these verses, an understanding of the missionary heart of God. And You know, you guys know, one of my favorite missionaries, as uh, I read missionary biographies, is John Patton. This incredible Scottish missionary. He's part of, uh, of this Scotland missionary movement that was going down to the island of the New Hebrides by Australia. I've told the story a million times. There were cannibals down there. And as the Scottish sent missionaries 
uh, you know, the stories told of the mother ship getting there and a little rowboat going to shore and the missionaries getting off and waving Bon Voyage back to the ship. And as the missionaries are there waving, the uh, cannibals come out of the jungles, they spear the missionaries and they kill them and they roast them and they eat them in front of the mother ship as the mother ship goes back to England. And John, Stott, or John Patton, there's two great Scottish preachers I love, John Stott and John Patton, I get them confused. Patton uh, heard about this and he just felt overwhelming a call to go to the New Hebrides Island. And so he, like many missionaries, left the materialism of this world. It's an epic biography. And as you read uh, this adventure of John Patton, you read the story that's fraught with dangers and toils. And when the ministry to these headhunters began to develop, the chief and Patton had their first encounter. And believe it or not, it was first the chief that had a culture shock meeting the Scottish man, and he found that John Patton actually had horrible breath. Believe it or not. And, and so the chief actually offered John Patton a pack of Mentos. Mentos, right? Mentos. Okay? It's known as the fresh maker in the New Hebrides. And, and, you know, Patton's like, man, I'm not ready to dive into the culture yet. And he said, no, no, I can't. And, of course, you don't refuse a headhunter's gift. And so at the tip of a spear, he runs back into his home and his hut with his wife. And he slams the hut door and blocking the door. And hearing the screams outside, he says, honey, we're in hot water with the tribe. We're in hot, hot water with the tribe. And pretty much from that point on, it was a hard ministry. He was served the cold shoulder the whole time. Served the, the cold. Okay. Anyways. Part of that story was true. Part of it distracted you completely from the message. That, but there was a point to it, okay? And the point is, and it was given to us in the 1700s by a Puritan preacher named Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather wrote as he saw American colonialism beginning to advance and prosperity come to the Americas. He was alarmed by this trend towards materialism and what was happening even within the church here in the Americas, and he wrote this. He wrote, religion begot prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. So the joke about cannibalism really was that materialism can be a cannibal of the church. Okay? Let me say that again from Cotton Mather. Religion begot prosperity. And the daughter devoured the mother. And so Cotton Mather was noticing something. He was noticing a great awakening coming to America. People are getting saved because of the freedoms that we have here. And so those freedoms and the, uh, the ability to have religious freedom and to preach the gospel, people are getting saved. Employers are treating their bosses in a godly manner. Bosses are treating their employees in a godly manner. There's prosperity coming from that. But what came, even within the church, as people are getting saved, they're working right, they're treating their, and so there's economic prosperity. But then he noticed, as he wrote his book, he wrote this incredible treatise, and he wrote that, that within a couple of generations, that prosperity turns and then uh, ends up consuming the very beautiful thing that gave it the prosperity in the first place. And so we want to watch out in one of the most prosperous seasons in world history that we are here being a part of, that we don't let the, the daughter turn and devour the mother. 
we don't let our prosperity as American Christians in 2018, Oregon, USA, turn and rob this church of the intention that God has had for us to reach this world and testify of God the Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. This cannibalism of prosperity has haunted the people of God throughout history. So the word for us is true, it's right, we need it. Command those in this present age who are rich, who are wealthy. First of all, don't be haughty. Don't be ha ha haughty. Don't have an elevated view of yourself. Why is it important that we talk about money today? Why is it important we talk about giving besides the fact that's where we're at in the Bible? Because Jesus says that money and what you do with it is a barometer of your heart. It's actually very easy to see the health of an individual spiritually by what they're doing with their money. And so we're to be commanded, those who are rich in this present age, those who just now in this world system, in this era, do not be haughty. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. And so the first danger of riches is arrogance. You know, we think that money brings to us uh, kind of like special status in the world. Uh, it brings to us special wisdom. Money makes our opinions matter. I mean, we see this the most in Hollywood, right? You know, you got some guy that can pretend in front of a camera, you know, and all of a sudden, like, they are given the platform to tell us what we should think and what we should believe, you know, and of course, that's ridiculous, you know, uh, and so, you know, money doesn't mean you have better character or better wisdom, and so, you know, to be proud that you have financial resources or resources of this world, uh, it's, it's in direct um, contradiction to uh, the, the scriptures. It's been called the materialistic illusion, and so we would be good today to as Romans tells us, not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Not to have an elevated view. We ought to think of ourselves a certain way. And it shouldn't be higher than we should. Okay? And how should we think then? Well, Philippians chapter 2 just tells us that we should be lowly minded. And that's something the Greeks hated because it, it was the picture of a slave stooping down and lifting everyone else up. And the Greeks hated that idea. And of course, Jesus comes and he preaches a totally different message about lifting others up. And you, if you want to be great, you bow down and you be the servant of all. So even if you have the money and the wealth and the resources of this world to a degree where you might be called rich or wealthy, be careful. Don't be proud. And I really challenge you to examine your heart because you might think I'm not proud. But how do you view the poor in this community? How do you talk to them when, in, when they're in the store, or when they're in the park, or when they come into our own church? And you know I make more than them. Or I'm more wise with what I do with my money than they are. And so you, you give them the cold shoulder, right? You serve them up a nice platter of the cold shoulder. How do you treat them? 
How do you behave toward them? How do you think of yourself in relationship to them? All throughout the scripture, there's just such a word about, even when the children of Israel went into the promised land, you know, when they went in in Deuteronomy, the Lord said, hey, be really careful when you go into the promised land that the Lord has given you, and you go into these cities that you didn't build, and you go into these herds of flocks that you didn't start, and you go into these vineyards that you didn't plant, you didn't do none of it, the Lord gave it to you, and when you go in there, you be careful that you don't forget your God who graciously gave you this. And you know what, let's be honest, when we look at our own lives, everything we've been given is the grace of the Lord. Nothing that we've done is our own, just, man, I just have some really good entrepreneurial qualities, you know. I challenge you to look deeper, and you'll see that it was the Lord that gave you these things. Don't be haughty as you are rich in this present age. It's a present age that later on it's going to say brings uncertain riches. In 1 John chapter 2, we studied this last summer in the park. It was such a word for our church that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't love the world or the things of this world. And it says in verse 17 that the world is passing away and the lust of it. This present world, it's passing away. It has uncertain riches. And if you would love it, it says that you are pushing out a love for God. If anyone loves this world, the love of the Father is not in him. So it says, do not trust in these uncertain riches. But put your hope in the living God. So the first danger of having riches is that you get prideful and you get haughty and you get arrogant. And then the second danger of riches is that you have a misplaced security. Our riches that we have right now, your greatest treasures, are really uncertain. They're uncertain. Proverbs says that riches make themselves wings, and they fly away like an eagle toward heaven. You ever feel like that when you get your um, tax refund? You're like, woohoo! You know, and you, put, you deposit it, and then, like, it's gone. Like, oh, I don't even know where it went. You know, it's just totally gone within the month. How did that even happen? Well, they just grew some wings and fluttered on off up there. And that's riches. They are so uncertain. And yet we can trust in them. You know, the rich young ruler, his problem was that he was trusting in his self-righteousness and in his riches. He was completely externally fulfilling the law of God. And yet on an internal level, he was covetous, which is breaking the command of the Lord, thus breaking all of the commandments of the Lord. And so the Lord said to him, might not be the same call to you, but to him it was. The Lord pushed the hot button on his heart and said, you, young man, need to go sell everything you have and give to the poor and be rich toward God. And he went away sad because he didn't want to inherit eternal life that way. I wanted to do it my way. And the Lord said, no, you've got idolatry in your heart, the idolatry of wealth. And then Jesus went on to say how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Remember the disciples. So they said, well, then who can enter? And just what hope huh? to us who are the rich uh, with with man, it's not possible with God. All things are possible. And so we pray that today. We pray that over the rich. That the, the God would do the possible thing and transform our heart to not be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches and how uncertain they are. 
Uh, over uh, the last week, uh, we were visiting our family, and we began watching this documentary on Netflix about um, before he was President Trump, he was the Donald, you know, uh, the Donald, DJT, you know, DJT, and he had his limo with the license plate, DJT, and we were watching this documentary about his investments, and talk about money, talk about money. I mean, you're watching that, and you're like, I just can't even fathom the life of the Donald, you know, just can't even fathom it. But then as you watch, you see that with that great wealth came great debt, and with that great debt brought so much unhappiness, so much unhappiness. You got the Taj Mahal, you know, Trump Taj Mahal, declaring bankruptcy. You know, there's just not that certainty, even if you are DJT, Donald Trump. Even where he's at now, he doesn't have the certainty if he would trust in the uncertain riches. And then I think we were having coffee this week, and my financial buddy DJ was saying, man, did you read this week? Like, Facebook shares went down 20% this week. I mean, our hill, our city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You know, the stress that comes with that, Ecclesiastes says. It is uncertain. That guy is putting all his money into us being narcissistic people that can't stop taking pictures of ourselves. That's actually a pretty wise investment when you think about it. But even that is uncertain riches. I like to try to talk money and, and act like I'm smart. I'm going to do it in a minute. And <laughs> You know, the old saying that's better to be quiet and, you know, be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> that's a daily occurrence for me. So you can, let's say you can, you can go ahead and trust in those riches, but they are uncertain and Paul says, hey, you command the church not to do that, but in contrast, trust in the living God. Uncertain riches, living God. Think about it for a second, all right? And that living, resurrected, all-knowing, omnipotent, 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 and omniscient, kind of a combination of all those together omnipotent okay that is the attributes of god in one word how about you trust in him okay he knows your name he knows what you're going through he knows your needs he cares about you more than the birds of the air or the flowers of the field and he will take care of your needs and so you just seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all of those things will be added unto you the food and the clothing with that we shall be content because it is he who gives us richly, did you notice it there in verse, uh, is it uh, 17? Gives us richly all things to enjoy. What a phrase. Trust in the living God who gives us richly. It was saying, it was saying one thing I read was like the threefold words of rich and it's like a noun, an adverb, and an adjective here in this verse. And it's just like rich, wealth richly driving home the point to not put your hope in something that that is not really rich and put your hope in something that's really really rich he gives us richly all things to enjoy and we can enjoy it why can we enjoy these things he has given us because it is an expression of god's gracious generosity 
So in our enjoyment, we are worshiping him because we are giving credit to whom credit is due. We are giving the credit that it is the Lord that has given us this. And so we worship him with thanksgiving for his abundant benevolence towards us. He gives us these things to enjoy. And so we worship him and thank him for his gracious, gracious generosity. It's been said that this is a legitimate enjoyment. Now, on the other end of things, we have the ascetics who were the false teachers in chapter 4 who were telling the Ephesians that asceticism is a symbol of godliness. And so Paul even here gives a jab in the ribs to ascetics and he tells them that, hey, ascetics, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Donald Guthrie says God has ordained everything for enjoyment. He richly provides us everything for enjoyment. The ascetic approach, therefore, cannot be right. Alistair Begg said, God has given us good things to enjoy, and the enjoyment of it is not illegitimate. This is legitimate enjoyment. So think now of the things that God has given us in his gracious omnisciolence to enjoy. In Ecclesiastes 5.18, here's what wise Solomon has said. Here's what I've seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God has given him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Did you notice how many times in Ecclesiastes it talks about God's giving him, giving him, giving him, give him? It's all about the Lord. Even the work that he's given us, he's given us. He has given us the enjoyment and he's given us the means of the enjoyment. And yet, the enjoyment of it does not necessarily have to be self-indulgent. We see in the instruction to the widows earlier on in this book that the widow who lives for pleasure is dead while she lives. And so we know that living for pleasure and just the fleshly satisfaction of these things that God has given us, those who live for this pleasure, they're dead while they live. They're dead men walking. That is not the purpose we're to live. We're not to live for the pleasure. Gordon Fee says, the reason everything may be enjoyed lies in the recognition that everything, including one's wealth, is a gift, and it's the expression of God's gracious generosity. And so what that does is it shifts our focus from the things he gives back to the giver. So he gives us all things richly to enjoy. We ought not focus on the things he's given us, but that he is the giver. That'll completely change what we do with our possessions, what we do with our wealth, what we do with our riches, 
and even our motivations and our hearts care for them. <coughs> we will then become givers. When we focus on the giver, we become givers. Towner says Paul shifts, revealing that a faith relationship is at stake. God, in his covenant with human beings, requires the human response of worship in return. And he goes on to say that this acknowledgement of the divine gift to us will move us toward active Christian service that will benefit others. And that's in the context. How many people, just look at verse 17, God gives us richly all things to enjoy, and they forget, don't be haughty, don't trust in those riches. And then the very next verse, let those do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give it, willing to share it. This has been what's called an I'll help you get it sentence. Because it repeats the same message three times with each message being a little more specific. And we Americans, we need a little, I'll help you get it, verses, don't we? So let's get it. Let them do good that they may be rich in good work. So as rich, duty number one is do good. The one other place the word do good is found is in Acts 14, 17. <clears throat> and it's actually talking about Jesus. Jesus did not leave himself without witness and that he did good. He's the one that is the do-gooder. He's the goodest do-gooder, really. Pardon my limited education there. He's the do-gooder. And he tells us to do good, but not only to those who do good to you, because what credit is that to you in Luke 6, 33? He says, even sinners do that. If you lend to someone from whom you hope to give back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and hope to get much back. But Jesus says, Jesus, the ultimate do-gooder, says, but you love your enemies. Do good and lend hoping nothing for nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Jesus is all about doing good. But it's doing good in the light of him who's done good towards us. Doing good in reflection of what he's given towards us. I had to ask Julia, we sang the song, the Remembrance Song. No, no, no. She had to show me. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is Remembrance. The bridge, I don't know if you caught her singing it today. What a beautiful, is she in here with us? Oh, Julia, gosh, tears pouring down my face. Thinking of this verse in, in our text today. You've been so, so good to me. You've been so, so good to me. Oh, to think where I would be if not for you, if not for you. Why should I give? I earned it, it's mine. No. He has been so, so good to you. He's been so, just, oh, to think where you would be if it weren't for him. You might, even be a, you might not even be a follower of Jesus here today. Oh, to think where you would be if it weren't for him holding everything together with the word of his power. And when he just lets go, 
anything that is even remotely something good in this world is gone. That's hell. That's hell. When he says, you wanted life without me, you have life without me. But when we realize that he's been so, so good to us, it just causes us to want to do good, ready to to do good, being rich in good works. David Platt says the biblical antidote for materialism is extravagant sacrificial giving. So give good things to others for their enjoyment. And in the process, you will invest good things in ours and others' eternity. In giving, not in hoarding. In sacrificing, not in indulging. So the antidote towards haughtiness and pride and trusting in uncertain riches is trust in the living God. Do good. And then here we have be generous. Ready to give. Let me ask you this. Are you ready to give? Are you a Christian? Are you just like ready to give? Just like, I'm just always ready to give. Just, you know, I, I said this last week and I don't know if it's right, but, you know, my mind just goes to, man, just have, have, a, little, um, have a little coin in your pocket, you know? You know, just have, have a little something there just, just to show I'm ready to give, Lord. Just, man, boom. Oh, you need something? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I, it might not be much, but I've got something to give. And I'm just ready to give it. I'm ready. What does that mean? It doesn't always mean you, know, you, got, a, you got a C note in your pocket or, a, or an Abraham Lincoln in your pocket or whatever. That's more me. That's my vibe. You know? Got a good old George Washington there ready for anybody, you know. Um, but, you know, but what does it mean for you? I'm just ready. You know, my, my truck, my, my drill, my resource, my, you know, just whatever. You know, my haircutting scissors. I'm just ready to give. You, you need a haircut. You know, you need, you know, I, man, I'd love to give you a pedicure. You know, I, man, I'd love to mow your lawn. I, got a, I just sharpened the blade and changed the oil. I'm, re- I'm just ready to give. I'm just ready. What? You, need, you need something. You need something. You know, some of you are like that. And we love that about you. We know, I take advantage of it fully, believe me. But we're just ready to give. You're like, yeah, we know. It's been said, there once was a man who they said was mad. The more he gave, the more he had. Good job. <clears throat> Some of you are still confused. Okay. But if you... I'm short. Okay. It's math. Don't worry about it. In 1731, John Wesley began to limit his expenses so he would have more money to give to the poor. So one year, early on in his ministry, his income was 30 pounds. His living expenses were 28. So he gave two pounds away. The next year, his income had doubled. The Lord had richly given him all things to enjoy. But he still just lived on 28 pounds, and he gave 32 pounds away. The third year, his income had jumped to 90 pounds. He only needed 28 to survive. And so he gave 62 pounds away. The fourth year, he made 120 pounds and 92 pounds went to the poor. Wesley preached that Christians should not merely tithe, but give away all extra income once the family and the creditors were taken care of. 
He believed with increasing income, a Christian standard of giving should increase, not their standard of living. And so he began this practice when he was at Oxford, and it continued for the rest of his life. Even when his income rose to thousands of pounds, he lived simply and quickly gave the surplus money away. One year, his income was slightly over 1,400 pounds, and he gave away all but 30. He was afraid of treasuring up, uh, storing up treasures on earth with his money, and so he gave it as quickly as it would come. And in 1791, the only money that was mentioned in his will were the miscellaneous coins that were in his pocket and his dresser drawers. That's all he had in his will. Most of the 30,000 other pounds he'd earned in his lifetime, he'd given away. Put that in today's standards, that's living on $20,000 a year. There once was a man who they said was a weirdo. <laughs> the more, he, I can't rhyme with that one. The more he gave, the more he, uh, yeah, you work on it, okay? So not only ready to give, but willing to share. Willing to share, it's, it's from the word koinonia. You guys know koinonia, right? Fellowship. Fellowship, oh, we're having a great fellowship here. Yeah, you just ate a donut. That doesn't count, okay? We think that's coffee and donuts. That's fellowship. Fellowship means sharing. Sharing, it might be sharing my heart burdens, sharing compassion, sharing tears, sharing resources, willing to share. And of course, the context is with our wealth, with our riches, freely generous. Now, you might have noticed, because I haven't designated or specified anything, but I've just been preaching today as if you're the rich. Have you noticed that? I got news for you. You're the rich. Let those who are rich, actually, it's command those who are rich in this present age. That's you. That's me. Check out this slide. Had to do a little bit, because we've been talking about it a lot with missions, and, oh, America is the richest country that there's ever been, and we're the richest, you know, and, and when you do the studies, we, we are. In our 200-something years, and, and really since, you know, I was talking with Lindsay, you know, my financial guru right here, you know, um, we had a lot of fun talking about it, and I'm just, like, going cross-eyed while she's talking about money and debt and blah, 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 and per capita and medians, and I'm like, what's a median? Isn't that someone who reads your horoscope? And you're, oh, no, that's it. Okay, so anyways... <laughs> check it out according to this site and i did a couple different sites and this had the best picture so i went with it but uh check it out so number one uh, uh ranked the 10 wealthiest countries in the world these major economies hold 73.5 percent of the world's total private wealth um, number one is is the usa okay number two is china this same study was that in the next 10 years it's projected that china will go up quite a lot actually, but just still not even be able to touch uh, where we're at. Uh, and so, you know, Japan and just going on and on, but, but man, uh, the United States is um, just, we are the rich, don't point Lindsay, nobody wants, she's like, he's saying it wrong, I told him to say it, say it exactly like this. Okay. We'll go to a different picture, okay? Uh, <laughs> But, you know, when you look at that, there's a little bit of you that's like, USA, USA, red, white, and blue, 50 stars and 13 stripes, and I love America, 50 states, and look at what we've got, and oh, yeah, America. We love our nation. 
What do we do with it? This is the median income in Prineville, okay? Median income, 24420 or something like that. Median, okay? So you know where you're at in that. Median income, it's not going to tell you your horoscope, but it's kind of like an average or something, okay? Anyways, out of 100 people in the world, so 7 billion people in the world, billion, 7 billion people, take 100 of them randomly, India and Pakistan and Vietnam and Russia and blah, 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 100. 100 people. I don't even think there's 100 people in this room, but let's just say there are, okay? I'd be generous, maybe, okay? So 100 people, okay? You, with the median income, and I did a couple other numbers, and probably most of us are actually higher than that. With the median income, you are the second most rich person in 100 people in the world. That's you. That's Prineville. When I moved here, we were the highest unemployment rate in the nation. And that's still us, okay? You're rich. You're rich, all right? You are in the top, and I don't even know how to say this, 1%, a little less than 1%, I I suppose. Richest people in the world by income. That makes you the 78,832,263th Richest person on earth by only 78 million, million. Think billions, people. Think billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of people, and you are in the 78 millionth. That's incredible. Check out this next slide. What you make hourly, and you know where you fit in this, $15.23 an hour. Meanwhile, the average laborer in Indonesia makes 39 cents in the same time. Is this not a word for us? Command those who are rich in this present age. Don't be haughty. Don't be puffed up. Just a dear friend of ours telling about going to Nepal. And why, would I, why would I go to Nepal? Why would I, why would I do that? You know, like they, they got their thing. You know, they, that's their thing. And, and you know, and, and we got our thing and kind of deserve it. And, you know, and it was just like, whoa, talk about We forget the grace of God that we were not born in the sex trafficking industry of Thailand. You had no control over that. Are you kidding me? You could be sweeping rice off a dirt floor and and just picking at and trying to get maggots and bugs. And you could be treating your wound with maggots pulled out of the sewage pile in the slum and pack it on there real good and hope it, you know, cleans your wound enough. We went to the doctor this week because my daughter's losing her hair and we had like six doctors in the room with us. Well, I think that it's, you know, male pattern baldness, you know, I think it's, you know. And I just said to them, look at this medical care. We're barely paying a dime. I've got ringing in my ears. I went to the doctor two times this week. Figure out, well, it might be dental. You might have a hole behind your tooth. And, you know, you, you might be getting old. It's finally catching up to you. All that, you know. And, and I went to the doctor twice, and they just bowed down to me and served me. They don't have this in other places. We are so rich. We're so rich. We are so haughty. We are such jerks. We are trusting in the wrong thing. We're not ready to give. 
We're not even willing to share. It's pathetic. Our neighbor asks something of us and we say, no, it's mine. That's not how the church does things. That's not how our example in the book of Acts chapter 4 does things. Nobody counted anything that they had as their own. It was their own, but they didn't count it as their own. Stephen Corbett and Bryant Bickert, economics professors at Covenant College, wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And it addressed how to help the poor in the healthiest ways. And they start at the beginning of their book by writing these words. The Bible's teachings should cut to the heart of North American Christians. By any measure, we are the richest people ever to walk on planet Earth. Furthermore, at no time in history has there ever been greater economic disparity in the world than at the present. While the average American lives on more than $90 per day, approximately 1 billion people live on less than $1 per day. And 2.6 billion, 40% of the world's population, live on less than $2 per day. In their condition, they ask, what is the task of the church then? The answer is, these are the economics professors, we are to embody Jesus Christ by doing what he did. He's the, he's the, he's the do-gooder. He's the do-gooder, and I just see that I'm not. Embody what he did and what he continues to do through us. Declare using both words and deeds that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is bringing in a kingdom of righteousness, justice, and peace. And they would go on to say, and the church needs to do this where Jesus did this, among the blind and the lame and the sick and the outcasts and the poor. You know what Sodom and Gomorrah's problem was? They had fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. You know, Billy Graham said that if, Ameri if uh, God doesn't judge America, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Fullness of food, abundance of idleness, and didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. <coughs> John Calvin said that wealth is a vast opportunity. A man's opportunity to do good to others increases with the abundance of his riches. You know, as John Wesley, you know, he just said, eh, it's 20, 28 pounds, and that's just all I need. The rest goes, and it's given to the poor and to the needy, and the advancement of the gospel in the world. C.S. Lewis said, you know what, look at your life. And then look at the life of, you know, the man who makes the same amount as you in the same culture. And maybe even it's the guy that works with you. And if your life is, if there's no difference between your life and his and your standard of living and his standard of living, then there's probably adjustment that needs to be made. Has your standard of living gone up with the raises or has your standard of giving gone up? Notice that Jesus is... Uh, has this wonderful promise towards us that as we give and share, we store up for ourselves a good foundation in the time to come. You know, you can't take your possessions with you. You can't take the boat. You can't take the truck. 
can't take the oversized tires. You can't take the animals. You can't take your garden with you. All that stuff, you can't take it with you. It will burn. It will perish. It will rot. It will rust. But you can take the Sherpa from Nepal with you. You can take the, the former Hindu from India with you. You can take the, the man from the cubicle next to you at work with you. You can take these people with you. And that's why Paul says when he talks about my crown of rejoicing in heaven, he says, and what is my crown? Is it not even you with me in the presence of the Lord at his coming? You're my crown. You're my reward. You storing up a good foundation and riches in heaven. Guys, that is a return on investment. That is good investing. That's proper economics. Paul was so concerned about the Ephesian church because he knew that they were the lighthouse to the world. And that the church in Ephesus was the pillar and ground of the truth. Because we are a lighthouse in this world. We need a proper view of our money. As we have the worship team come up. One missionary society the, uh, wrote a, it's called the Lausanne Congress on World Evangelism. 30 years ago, wrote what's called the Evangelical Commitment to Simple Lifestyle. Listen, we resolve to renounce waste and to oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing, and housing, travel, and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between the service of God and slavery to fashion, where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us together with members of our family. Let's resolve to use discernment in our spending, be prayerfully, sacrificially generous in our commitments. Reading C.T. Studd's biography, he was a missionary, no, no cannibal jokes, I promise. But reading his biography, so he was just super wealthy in England. His dad was this incredible racehorse breeder. His dad got saved, gave each kid a horse, and then sold the rest. And then uh, and his sons, three sons, the Stud family, went on to be like famous, famous, world-famous cricket players. Like Ken Griffey Jr., you know, in just in their scope of fame. And all three of them got saved and became missionaries and gave it up. They went to China. They got rid of English dress, and they wore Chinese dress, and they grew their hair out, and little wee Fu Manchus and all that, you know? I mean, it's just loving the Chinese. They went and gave it all up. But when CT was in this, like, got saved, he's on, like, a little evangelism team. He, he's, like, super wealthy and super famous and just could have anything he wanted as a famous sports athletic, sports athlete. <laughs> I don't know sports or athletes, but... He wrote, listen to this, when he's trying to decide what to do with his life, he said, 
Having spent three months in reading my Bible and praying to God for guidance, I came back much better, but still not knowing what I was to do. I decided to read for the bar exam until he should show me. I found, however, when I got back to town that it was absolutely impossible for me to conscientiously go into any business or profession. It seemed so thoroughly inconsistent. God had given me far more than what was sufficient to keep my body and soul together. And I thought, how could I spend the best years of my life in working for myself and the honors and pleasures of this world while thousands and thousands of souls are perishing every day without having heard of Christ? About this time, I came upon a tract written by an atheist. It read as follows. Did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this life influences destiny in another religion would mean to me everything i would cast away earthly enjoyments as dross earthly cares as follies and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity religion would be my first waking thought and my last image before i sleep sank me into unconsciousness i would labor in its cause alone i would take thought for the morrow of eternity alone. I would esteem one soul gained for heaven worth a life of suffering. Earthly consequences would never stay my hand nor seal my lips. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach to it in season and out of season. And my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I at once saw, C.T. writes, that this was the truly consistent Christian life. When I looked back upon my own life, I saw how inconsistent it had been. I therefore determined that from that time forth, my life would be consistent. He goes on to write, Later on, splendid news from Liverpool. The fire is still burning and over 60 professed conversion in that one night. I cannot tell how very much the Lord has blessed us and we daily grow in the knowledge of Jesus and his wonderful love. What a different life from my former one. Why, cricket and rackets and shooting are nothing to this overwhelming joy. Find out, uh, finding out so much about not only the needs of the heathen, but also the poor in London and all the great towns has increased my horror at the luxurious way I've been living. So many suits and clothes of all sorts, while thousands are starving and perishing of cold. So all must be sold when I come home, if they've not been so before. Mother dear, I do pray God to show you that it is such a privilege to give up a child to be used of God to saving poor sinners who have never even heard of the name of Jesus. God bless you, dear darling mother, and I know he will do it and turn your sorrow into joy. Guys, this isn't radical Christian living. This is normal Christian living. This is the writings of someone who has seen what Jesus has done for him. It says, how can I not but give everything I have back in service to him? 
So that might mean for you today that you start being very intentional in your regular generous giving as the early church to this local church. Giving, and maybe a starting place for you is just giving 10%. Maybe never given before, I don't even know what. Maybe, maybe 10%, maybe five. Be led by the Spirit. 10 is a good starting place. Maybe 20, maybe 30. Give according to your ability, the Bible says. Give to the local church so that this local church can do the work of the ministry here in town and around the world. But also on top of that, have an ear to the ground for the suffering and the hurting of this world. Get involved in some of the water projects and the feeding projects in this world. Look at Mountain Child. Look at Samaritan's Purse. Uh, you know, be a part of generous giving. Be a part of you know, this, the, the, the giving here in Prineville and the hurting and the broken and the poor. There's a man that's been coming into our church uh, a couple weeks ago. His name's Montana. And he's just, he's the poor and he's the hurting and he's the broken in this community right now. Can't move, can't walk, pulls a wagon with his wheelchair. Just one of the guys in our church just started loving on him. Just started loving on him, just reaching out to him, just reaching out throughout the week to him. And the park service day, you know, we came and and uh, he's outside the church waiting and the doors are locked. He's like, hey, Montana. And, and he comes over and he's just got this bulge on his neck. He said, what's wrong? What happened? He said, I've got an abscess in my tooth. I'm just in excruciating pain. I said, man, I'll pray for you and just see what we can do to, to give. And just hear that this other gentleman from our body is just on it. He's already been on it. He's already been trying to figure out how can we help with this tooth issue. And here he is pulling a, wheel, a wagon with his wheelchair around. This gentleman from our body went and tracked down a scooter for this man to have. Oh, my heart is overflowing. I'm not like that. Just, I'm not very much like that. I want our church to be like that. We want to be very cautious in what is extravagant living versus what's just, what do we need to get by as a church? You know, as we're looking at a 70-year-old church so that we can meet and disciple our children, have room to fellowship and eventually pay it off and not even have a building payment anymore and I went to another church recently and it's just new and fresh and everything's new and new paint and new tile and just everything's so beautiful and new and three million dollars of debt still to pay off that's that's after over a decade of already paying off it just you know whatever like we're just, we're in Prineville it's just different and this is what we've got and this is what the Lord has before us we have a building that's over double the size of what we've got now we can go over to it, and we can start paying it off, and pretty soon we won't have a building payment anymore. We just start giving completely and totally to global evangelism and to the helping of the needs of this world, physically and spiritually. So just urge you, dig deep, let's be generous, but, but this is, that's nothing. That's nothing. Don't even focus on, don't even think about the building. It's like, whatever, Lord, just lead me. Man, Lord, the world needs to hear the gospel. Come on a short missions trip with us to Nepal. Just have your mind blown when you see the little kid just eating out of the garbage can hasn't showered probably ever in his life, just got snot running down his face and just mud caked on him, and he's just coming up to you, and you give him a piece of candy and a balloon and blow it up and, and play with him for a little bit. Tell his family about Jesus. Come be a part of that. It will change your life. Are you ready to give? Are you willing to share? Are you going to be here next week, Kathy? Kathy, I want you to pray and be led by the Spirit. And how our body is going to be ready to give. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be just overly emotional. I, just, I see my lack. I see my lack. And so, Kathy, will you just like lay it out for us? Like, Holy Spirit, lay it out. 
our body can come alongside you, Kathy. What's going on over there? There's unreached in Uganda. Kathy is a part of a ministry to like two different tribes that are just radically unreached. Never heard of the gospel, and, and she's going up and sharing Jesus with them. And orphans, you know, we got people in our church that are orphans that have been reached by Kathy's ministry. What a hero. Praise God. We've got a hero in our midst today. We want to hear from her next week. So come next week ready to give. Just have some loose, have some loose checkbook ready. Holy Spirit led. If it's, if it's a widow's might, it'll be more than enough. If you're giving out of your, out of what the Lord's given you. Let's be generous next week. We're going to hear from Kathy next week. Forgive me. I don't, I know emotion can be cheap. I'm not just trying to manipulate. I just, I just want the Lord to change me. This is my second time I've preached this, preached it last week to Corvallis. And I just continue to long just for leading and how to give and just continually give. And let's stand together. Will you, I got a text this morning from the church I taught last week from the pastor, Rob. And he said, you want to be encouraged? Of course, who doesn't? Rich Holmes, longtime surgeon, was in the service last Sunday, and he got saved. Now he wants to be baptized. Paul Witzke, a believer and local CPA who brought him, is asking to help baptize him this morning. Praise the Lord. He can use a money message to save a surgeon and bring him into the kingdom of God. Lord, you know you're here. You know me. I'm just an idiot, Lord. Just, just let people look past the dumb cannibal jokes and, and just weeping, dude, and just, oh, Jesus. Thank you for your indescribable gift. You've done good to us. You've done good to us. If it weren't for you, where would I be? We're so rich, Lord. Thank you. It's your grace you've given us. The, the businesses that we've started. The, oh, I think there's a, there's a farmer in our, in our church. Just wonderful. Just a couple farmers. Just beautiful. Beautiful tractors and just beautiful equipment and just out all night long, working hard, tilling up the soil and bailing the hay. And Lord, you've given a yield of, of hay to the farmers in our church. Praise you, Lord. Think of a, a steel building contractor in our church here today that, that he's tried to quit the business and just can't quit it. And, and just, fine, I'll do the job if you'll pay what I, you know. And just, just so much, Lord, that you've given and just a generous heart there. I think of the building contractors and so many builders and men that build and and Lord, just the, the teachers in our church that they have those jobs that just the government is paying them just beautifully to love on the kids of our community. And thank you for just the yield of children in our community so that our teachers can have funds and finances, Lord. Think of the veterinarians in our church. I think of the, the electricians in our church. Think of the just the, the great yield that you've given us of of yield of, of children through the those mothers who are staying at home and discipling their kids and raising up missionaries. We are rich in missionaries in this church and disciples in this church. Thank you, Lord, for Kathy Vaughn. Lord, thank you for Kathy. Just oh, I don't know that we've treated Kathy well. Lord, I just thank
thank you for Kathy and her love for this church. And Lord, just move by your spirit for Uganda at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. Think of our Ugandan kids in our church and in our community, Lord. And the poor Ugandans and the, the unreached Ugandans. I think of this map of Nepal on the wall that there's a little chunk of geography there that, that you've taken feet from this church to trek in those mountains and preach the good news. And those are beautiful feet. And Lord, would you prepare more feet for this next trip in April? You've made us rich, Lord, and we want to give and we want to share and we want to go. Just let, uh, let our enjoyment of these things you've richly give us not be for fleshly indulgence. But for good, for sharing. Let's close in song.